Thank you, Carrie. How are you doing? Everybody doing okay? Well said. Well, today we conclude a series studying the seven churches of Revelation. Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the Apostle John records seven letters written by Jesus to seven first century churches. In each letter, Jesus tells the church what he thinks about their faith. Now, as we've studied the letters together, we've been asking him to do the same for us. That being said, I recognize we are all at different places on this spiritual journey. Some of us are new to faith. Some of us have been followers of Jesus for decades. And there are others who have made no commitment to God. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're asking questions about faith. Maybe you're here at the invitation of a friend. Maybe you came to observe, but you've made no decision to become a follower of Jesus. If that describes you, I want you to know from the start, this message is not for you. The things we'll discuss today are not directed at you, but only people who have made a decision to identify themselves with the way of Jesus. You get to eavesdrop on a bit of family business. Now, though this message may not directly pertain to you, I'm really glad you're here. Because what we discuss may help you to understand the disconnect you've observed between who you think God should be and how his people have represented him. Maybe this message will help you understand why you've never been a big fan of church or religion, why it's taken you so long to consider a life of faith. No matter where you are on this journey of faith, I invite all of you to open your heart, open your mind to see if God has something to say to you today. Can you pray with me? Lord, this morning we say thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the blessing of health and provision. We thank you for the blessing of opportunity. We thank you for the blessing of struggle. When you know that's what we need most. You are the giver of good gifts and our gratitude cannot match your generosity. Nevertheless, we thank you. We thank you. In Christ's name, amen. A little over 10 years ago, we took our first family trip to Disneyland. Emma, my teenager, was about three years old at the time. It was a magical experience for our little Emma Kate. We spent most of the day at the theme park. We rode the teacups. We rode It's a Small World. We rode Dumbo. We rode It's a Small World. <laughs> we rode the Jungle Boat. Then we tried It's a Small World. It was quite a day. But Emma Kate was especially excited about our evening. You see, that evening, we had reservations for a princess dinner in which we'd meet the Disney princesses. As evening comes, we take our exhausted but excited daughter 
to dinner with autograph book in tow. To get to the restaurant, we have to traipse back through the entire park, but it is worth it to meet the princesses. As I walk through the park, holding my three-year-old daughter's hand, she looks up at me and says, my tummy hurts. I'm sorry, baby, her daddy says. Let's go meet Ariel. Once we arrive at the restaurant, we're impressed with the charming staff and a menu that caters to adults and children alike. Emma wants to order Ursula's Octodog, which is a hot dog sculpted into the shape of an octopus and placed on a bed of macaroni and cheese. I think it cost $40. (laughs) I told Emma Kate, sweetheart, even though we will not be able to afford college, you can order the Octo Dog. Not, Not long after we order, Emma says, my tummy hurts. I'm so sorry, baby. Look, here's Belle. We meet Belle, who was a delight. In fact, almost every Disney princess came to our table that evening. It was thrilling. So thrilling. Emma isn't interested in her food when it arrives. As she frowns at her octodog, Emma declares, my tummy hurts. Emma's daddy says, eat the $80 octopus. (laughs) The food is actually delicious. I even try the Octodog because I wonder why my daughter isn't eating. The Octodog tastes as agreeable as you'd expect any Octodog to taste. But Emma Kate just picks at her food. I say, baby, mommy and daddy are spending a lot of money on this $150 Octodog. Please eat. You know what Emma says? Uh-uh. Emma says, and spews a day's worth of theme park food all over the table. It was magical. <laughs> but did you know, there's something that makes God sick. According to the letter we will read today, you and I can live in such a way that makes God's stomach turn. The recipient of the letter is the church in Laodicea. If you'll indulge me again, I'd like to begin our study with a history lesson because the background of the city sets the scene for the letter. Laodicea was located in the region of Phrygia. Within the region, Laodicea was the most prominent city of a tri-city metropolis. Its sister cities included Colossae, 10 miles to the east, and Hierapolis, 6 miles to the north. As we've seen throughout this series, the culture of each city is important to our study because Jesus picks up particular details to use as illustrations of the truths he's communicating. Here are a few things we need to know about Laodicea. As it rose to prominence in the region, it became the center for banking. Laodicea was well known for its wealth. Perhaps the most stunning display of its riches comes from its history. In AD 60, Phrygia was rocked by an earthquake. Laodicea was nearly destroyed along with Philadelphia and Hierapolis. However, 
Unlike those other cities, when Rome offered assistance to rebuild the city, Laodicea was so wealthy, they refused. They didn't need any help. They could do it on their own. Thank you very much. One of its major exports was wool. The fertile soil of the Lycus Valley provided an abundance of grass for sheep to graze. But Laodicea was particularly recognized for raising sheep that produced soft, glossy, black wool. I know. (laughs) Additionally, the city was seen as a center for medicine. Laodicea boasted a medical school associated with Menkaru, the god of healing. The school promoted the teaching of Hierophilus, who used compound medicines to cure illnesses. Laodicea became famous for its compound eye salve. It was called Phrygian powder. It was well known for treating eye disease. Stay with me. This is going somewhere. Besides earthquakes, the greatest weakness of this city was its water supply. It became a thriving metropolis because of its location on the trade routes, not because of its natural resources. In order to meet the needs of its recipients, water had to be piped in from the north. The water was transported through ducts that stretched for miles and miles. Now, as much as we know about the city of Laodicea, we know little about the church in Laodicea. Though Paul mentions it along with the churches in its sister cities in one of his letters, Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, Paul writes, Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He's always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Many scholars speculate that his colleague, this colleague of Paul Epaphras founded the church in Laodicea. We don't know if Paul ever visited, but we know he wrote them a letter. Look at verse 16. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. We don't know what happened to that letter to the church in Laodicea, but apparently both documents were circulated to both churches, and only the letter to the church at Colossae was preserved through the ages. We do have one letter written to the church. It's the one written by Jesus, which John records in Revelation 3. We find in it the similar pattern we've seen through the letters thus far. Revelation 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. As with previous letters, Jesus identifies himself with the description customized to the needs of the specific church. Here he refers to himself as the Amen. It's a Hebrew word uh, transliterated into Greek. In Hebrew, it looks like this. Amen. Have you ever wondered what in the world that means? We conclude our prayers with it. Maybe it's just a spiritual way of saying the end. Amen. Actually, the verb aman in Hebrew means to verify, to confirm. It's usually used as a response to what someone says. We might loosely translate it, so be it, or let it be. In everyday life, if someone says something you agree with, you might say to her, Amen, sister. That is an appropriate use of the word aman or amen. 
may it be true. Now, here's what's important to know. With the verb aman in its noun form, amen, it's not, amen is not just about something being true as opposed to being false. It, if something is amen, it is both true and trustworthy. See, amen is about reliability. Throughout the Gospels, we find Jesus saying, truly I say to you, or verily I say unto you. Those verses are often tran- Greek transliterations of the adverb form, amen. Amen, amen, I say unto you. When Jesus says, truly I tell you, he's saying, you can trust what I'm saying. He says, you can take my words to the bank. So back to Revelation 3, verse 14, when Jesus calls himself the amen, he is emphasizing that he is true and trustworthy. If there's any doubt, he clarifies the title with the following description, the faithful and true witness. Now, If you've read ahead in this letter, you know Christ's faithfulness contrasts sharply with the behavior of the church in Laodicea. And the contrast is not insignificant. He says, in essence, though you've been unfaithful, I've remained faithful. I love our Lord so much because he's faithful when I'm not. Get this, friends. Know this about the character of God. He will match your flimsy, fragile faith with his rock-solid faithfulness. Some days I'm overwhelmed by his love and patience for me. Jesus then refers to himself as the ruler of God's creation. In the original letter, the word ruler is the Greek word arche. Arche is a theologically loaded word. It means ruler, but it also means source. It means beginning. It means first. Now, Laodicea is a city that considers themselves first. They're the best. They're the elite. And their comfort confirms it. Well, it seems, as the church enjoyed those same comforts, they've adopted the attitude of their city. So in this letter, Jesus warns his friends in the church, blessing blinds. Blessing blinds. The church of Laodicea has become complacent because of their comfort. Their wealth has brought them a feeling of safety, security, and control. But verse 14 reminds the reader who really has control of their world. The question in Revelation 3 is, will they look to the faithful one with faith? They really need to, because unlike every previous letter, Jesus has nothing good to say about them. Now, if you've been here through this series, you'll remember, usually Jesus begins his letter with praise for the church to whom he writes. But it's not so in verse 15. Jesus says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. I suspect we have a few coffee drinkers in this room. Is that true? Hey, I've seen your passion. You can't make it through your morning without a trip through the drive-thru. Your afternoon is a disaster without your pumpkin spice whatnot or your iced mocha cha-cha. You are particular about your brew and Folgers won't do. 
Now, you may prefer Starbucks, you may prefer Dunkin', you may like a local brewer, but you all seem to be in agreement about one thing. You like your coffee either piping hot or iced cold. The last thing you want is a tepid cup of java. Jesus says to the Laodicean church, I wish you were either piping hot or ice cold, but you are room temperature. Verse 16, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Most of our English translations water down the verb in Greek. It's the word ameo. Uh, we get our English word emetic from it. I bet some of the medical professionals in the room could tell us what an emetic is. An emetic is a substance that induces vomiting. That's what the verb means, to vomit, to throw up. Jesus looks at the faith of his church in Laodicea and he says, you make me sick. Look again at verse 16. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Traditionally, this verse is interpreted as a reference to passion, as if Jesus were saying, he'd rather you be either on fire for him, or he'd rather you be completely cold and disinterested. Half-heartedness is unacceptable. Well, that's an interesting message. And Jesus will have something to say about devotion in a moment. But that's probably not what he's saying in verse 16. Remember, he's talking about their works. He says, I know your deeds. They're neither hot nor cold. This is actually an illustration from the city's water supply. And as we said, Laodicea doesn't have access to the cold, refreshing waters of Colossae. Now, Colossae was renowned in the region for its pure life-giving water that was safe to drink. However, the water of Laodicea got pumped in from the north, from Hierapolis, the other city in the triad. The waters of Hierapolis were considered life-giving, but for a different reason. You see, they were hot springs. To this day, tourists travel to this part of Turkey to soak in the hot springs. Several hotels in the area pumped the water into their spas. But this geothermically heated water is also charged with chemicals. Here's a picture of the springs of Hierapolis today. You can see the minerals that have built up from the flowing water. Here's another one. It's beautiful, isn't it? But I wouldn't recommend taking a swig. It's not safe to drink. Remember the Laodiceans channeled the water through aqueducts into the city. Portions of those ducts are still standing. You could see the chemical buildup in the ruins of the channels. Now, it would have been fine if the water entered the city hot, but by the time it reached Laodicea, the water had cooled considerably. That means the water that came from those pipes was too cold for bathing and too nasty for drinking. It was lukewarm. If left unheated from the aqueduct, the water was worthless. And Jesus says to the church of Laodicea, that's the best I can say about your deeds. They're good for nothing. What happened? 
What happened to this church that caused it to grow to a place of complacency and uselessness? The answer is found in verse 17. You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. Remember, the city prided itself in its self-sufficiency. They didn't need Rome. They had their own money. They made their own way. They proved to the world that they were equipped to handle disease and disaster better than most cities without any help from others. Well, as goes the city, so goes the church. They've apparently become too big for their britches. This self-made community appears to have forgotten how desperately they need God. There was another period in the history of God's people when God was worried about greatness going to their heads. In Deuteronomy 8, God's people were on the verge of entering the promised land. They were about to enter a season of prosperity they had not known for hundreds of years. In that moment, Moses says to the people, don't forget God. Don't forget God. Look at Deuteronomy 8, verse 11. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God. Moses is afraid. They'll forget it was God who brought them out of slavery. It was God who led them through the desert. It was God who provided the manna. Verse 17, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands produce this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Again and again, I've discovered Blessing blinds. Blessing blinds. God's blessing often blinds us to God himself. Let me explain. When you're in a jam you can't fix, you lean on him. When you're in a relationship that's coming apart, you lean on him. When you're broke or broken, jobless or miserable, you are more apt to lean on him for stability. But when you're successful, when you're comfortable, when you're respected, you can subconsciously forget who enabled you to succeed. That's a product of pride. And pride blinds us to reality so that we live a facade. Verse 17, the Laodiceans said, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But, verse 17 continues, Jesus says, you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Blessing blinds, but Jesus offers a reality check. With five jarring words, he stuns them as they relax in their pews. Each of the five words shares a single article in Greek, which means the five adjectives combined describe five aspects of the same spiritual condition, each one building upon the next. It's a brilliant piece of rhetoric in Greek. Wretched is a word that describes misery and distress. It means afflicted, enduring toil and trouble. Pitiful is similar in meaning. He says to the self-important, self-made church, you're pathetic. The next three words link directly to their culture. Though they're relatively quite prosperous, they're actually quite poor. 
Laodicea's lender to the region. They're used to people coming to them for resources, but this church has nothing to give, nothing anybody would want anyway. And how many times have we seen this? Churches with big buildings and lots of money are spiritually impoverished. They've got nothing to offer anyone who comes to them. We've seen this in individuals. On the outside, they appear to be spiritually affluent, but on the inside, they are spiritually bankrupt. And Jesus says, you are blind. This is especially ironic for a city celebrated for its ophthalmology. Jesus says, your eye powder has restored the physical side of people throughout the empire, but it does nothing to treat spiritual blindness. Finally, Jesus says, you are naked. Harsh words for a church in a city known for the manufacture of fine clothes. To these realities, the Lord responds, verse 18, I counsel you to buy gold from me, refined in the fire, so you can become rich. The spiritual gold stockpiled in Laodicea is not worth near as much as they thought. But Jesus says, buy gold from me. From me is emphatic in Greek. There's only one place to go for the kind of gold they need. Verse 18 again, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. In this series, we've seen that white clothes symbolize purity. They contrast sharply with the well-known black garments of Laodicea. The irony continues in the next illustration. Jesus offers and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. See what he did there? And he tells them, verse 19, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Well, here's something to see. The two churches, the only two churches Jesus says he explicitly loves in the seven letters are Philadelphia and Laodicea. Philadelphia did nothing wrong. Laodicea did nothing right. Jesus makes sure Both know they're loved. And he warns this church that sometimes true love is tough love. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. As we read a few weeks ago, wise writers have observed in the Proverbs, Proverbs 3, verse 11 and 12, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father the son he delights in. Then in Hebrews twelve ten, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Well, as we learned a few weeks ago, as Tara walked us through the letter to the church of Philadelphia, not all hardship is punishment. Hear me? Not all hardship is punishment. But sometimes it is. And even when it's not punishment, it might be discipline. Consider the discipline of an athlete. She doesn't train herself to punish herself. She trains herself so she can be better. But there is such a thing as loving punishment. Tender rebuke. If you're a parent, one of the worst things you can do for your child is fail to offer loving, consistent discipline. 
Our world is paying the price for parents who didn't teach their children limits. As parents, we can be firm without being furious. We can mean it without being mean. When a good father punishes his child, he doesn't send him to his room in revenge. He doesn't take away her cell phone to be vindictive. It's so she can learn a lesson before the stakes get higher and the consequences greater. Our father is such a great father. He loves the bad kid as much as the good kid. And he shows it by spending extra time and energy working with him. So let me ask, is God working on you right now? Is God working on you, better said, in you? Again, I'm not saying that all hardship is punishment for wrongdoing. It's not. But it may be discipline nonetheless. What's he training you to do better? Is he teaching you to love? Is he teaching you to forgive? Is he teaching you to live on less? Is he teaching you to be as patient with your kid as he is with his? Jesus writes, verse 19, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Then he says, so be earnest and repent. And we've seen that word repent throughout the letters. It means to turn. It means to change. But that word earnest is a new one. In Greek, it's the word zeluo. Zeluo conveys uh, intense interest in something. When used positively, it's translated zealous. When used negatively, it's translated jealous. Jesus says to this lethargic, comfortable church, get off your duff and get with it. The English Standard Version of this passage reads, be zealous and repent. So, how would you rate your passion for God? How would you measure your devotion in this season? On one occasion, a teacher of the law asked Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? Jesus responds by quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, Mark 12, verse 30. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And we've read this verse 10 manjillion times, haven't we? We're going to continue to read it 10 manjillion more times over the years. But as we read it again, don't read it too quickly. Don't gloss over the description of devotion. Jesus says the most important thing you can do is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's look at it in its original context. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Then Moses describes how that love might look. Verse 6, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And as you read this, don't do as the Israelites eventually did and turn these into legalistic commandments that flaunt self-righteousness. These aren't laws. These are ancient illustrations that show how a life of devotion might look. 
When you're fully devoted to God, his teaching sinks deep into your soul. And people can see it as you live it out in your everyday life. When you're fully devoted to God, you can't help but share your faith with your kids and apply it to their world of math tests and schoolyard conflicts. When you're fully devoted to God, you bring God with you wherever you go. And it isn't a burden. You found it to be the best way to do life. It's devotion. Of course, devotion may look different for you than it does for me. So ask yourself, what does devotion look like for you in other areas of life? You may be a devoted Denver Broncos fan. If you are devoted to the Denver Broncos, you will faithfully watch every game. If you are devoted to the Denver Broncos, you decide what weekend church service you will attend based upon kickoff time. If you're devoted to the Denver Broncos, you might wear an orange jersey with the number 18. You might read articles during the week to find out who's injured and how preseason's going. If you're devoted to the Denver Broncos, you probably find yourself drawn to other fans who share your passion. You may get together with them to eat cheese dip and experience your devotion together. It's what it might look like for you if you were devoted to the Denver Broncos. What would it look like if you were devoted to Jesus? Understand, the more devoted you are to something, the more it affects your everyday life. Jesus says the greatest commandment, the most important thing in life is to love the Lord with everything in you. How are you doing with that? Has blessing blinded you from the true state of your soul? Then Jesus says in verse 20, here I am, literally, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Maybe you're familiar with a couple paintings based on this passage. First, Holman Hunt's The Light of the World. Finished in 1854, this work features a door with no handle. It can only be opened from within. Growing up as a church kid, I was more familiar with Warner Solomon's Christ at heart's door. Any of you remember this one? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. The image from Revelation 3 is often used to illustrate a loving Savior tapping on the door to the soul of an unbelieving man or woman. Now, while that image may prove helpful, it's not the context of this letter. Remember, Jesus isn't writing this letter to an unbeliever. He's writing this to his church. In the letter to Laodicea, Jesus is outside the fellowship waiting to be invited in. How did he get on the outside in the first place? Did they even realize they shut him out? Jesus says in verse 20, Here I am, I stand at the door in knock. The verbs are in the present tense, which in Koine Greek expresses continual action. Christ is still standing. Christ is still knocking. Will anyone answer? (laughs) 
And Jesus offers a promise. Verse 20, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. In the ancient Near East, sharing a meal means sharing life. It is a sign of intimacy. Jesus desires to be with us and experience life with us. And don't miss the fact that the church with the greatest sin is offered the greatest promise. Here is a convicting question. When you pray, when you talk to Jesus, are you seeking fellowship with him? Or are you just looking to make your life better? When you talk to Jesus, are you hoping to get to know him more? Or are you hoping to make your life more comfortable, more prosperous? Jesus concludes with another promise, verse 21. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Somewhere, somehow in the mystery of God's plan, we will rule with Jesus and share his throne. Finally, verse 22, Jesus concludes, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the seventh time we've read this. All seven letters conclude this way. What Jesus says to this church is what Jesus says to our church. He says to you and me, will you repent? Will you turn to me in zealous devotion? Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for blessing. I I know we all represent different economic situations, but the fact of the matter is, in comparison to the rest of the world, we are blessed. And we thank you. But some of us have grown complacent in our comfort. Somehow, perhaps even subconsciously, we've been living life like it's all up to us. And we rather like that. I fear that blessing has blinded us from the reality of our situation. For some of us, blessing, comfort, success has prompted us to shut you out. Because we didn't need you. We've shut you out. Oh, Maybe not out of every part of our lives, but we've shut you out of a few rooms. Lord, may my friends sense this is your knock. May they find the faith to throw the door open and let you in. Knock louder. Knock loud enough to be heard 
by our deaf ears. And may we trust you with every area of our life. Lord, I also pray for my friends who have been hurt by church, who've been left outside. Lord, I pray they see sometimes you're left outside too. May they feel your arm around them, inviting them to come inside with you. We pray this together in the name of our King, Jesus. Amen. All right. Let's talk about homework. And I want to start with a verse for the week. It's one of my favorites. Jeremiah 29, verse 13. The prophet writing on God's behalf says, You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Pay attention to that last line. It's about devotion, isn't it? Are you giving yourself fully to seeking God? Now, hey, some of you are. Some of you, whatever you're doing, it's working. Remember what we mean by work? When I say something like that is working, seeking the Lord is working, we mean that you're increasing your love of God and your love of others. That's how you know if it's working. If that's happening, keep doing what you're doing and don't change. Better yet, let us know what you're doing because it might do us some good too. Keep it up. But some of us are stuck and stalled. Some of us, we aren't seeking him. Oh, sure, we come to church, and that's really good, and that's one way to seek him. But the fact of the matter is, you know, look deep in your soul, it's not enough. And you need to do something different, something new in this season. Find something. Be intentional. Be deliberate. Be creative. Find ways of connecting with God in this season. Join a small group. Volunteer. Serve your neighbors. Approach the scriptures, maybe in a new way. Let me give you, uh, there's a, a document that we created some time ago, and we updated it from time to time. It's called our Resource Recommendations Guide. Uh, This is uh, a little booklet of resources that I found helpful in my life and and my journey as a pastor all these years. Uh, I just found certain resources to be most helpful to most people in different seasons of life. If you're looking for a, a, a new way to connect to God in this season, grab this. Uh, easiest way to do it is download it as a PDF from our website. You can go to our online bulletin. Also look for it to be posted on our social media council later this week. That's why we created it. 
And uh, we hope you find some of these resources helpful for your particular circumstances of life. Uh, but remember, everybody needs something different. What works for you may not work for me and vice versa. This week I received an email from a friend who was looking for a new way to engage the Bible in a new season of life. Uh, and she's a, a wonderful gal, brilliant lady. Uh, so let me just tell you what I told her, see if it suits you. First, I, I recommended a devotional book. Now, countless people have been served by daily devotional books. You might know what these are. Uh, they usually invite the reader to prayerfully engage a passage of Scripture. Then they're followed by two to three pages of content from the author in which the text is explained and applied to everyday life. Now, my favorite devotional is called Hidden in Christ by James Bryan Smith. It's a 30-day study of Colossians 3. If you're looking for a new way to seek the Lord in this season, get this book. I love it. Uh, now, from time to time, I recommend Bible commentaries to individuals. These are books typically written by scholars that explain the biblical text verse by verse. Now, many commentaries are too academic for the typical disciple, but here's one that isn't. It's called the For Everyone series by N.T. Wright. Dr. Wright's one of the world's foremost New Testament scholars, but in this series he offers his thoughtful, accessible guidance to the reader who wants to know Jesus. Now, you can pick your favorite New Testament book and start there. If in doubt, start with Matthew, the first gospel in the New Testament. Work through a passage uh, a day by day. It's just three to four pages. I've worked through these personally. They are fantastic. It might just change your life. I want to give you one more resource, and it's just this graphic that you've seen already. Blessing Blind. You can download this. You can download that verse from Jeremiah from our online bulletin from our social media accounts later this week. Now, it is here in our liturgy, because that's what it is, isn't it? It's here in our service that I would usually ask you to stand and I would pray a prayer over you. Now, that is something I will do momentarily. Before I do so, there are a couple really important things I need to talk to you about. First, in two weeks, we will begin a series that we do each year called God and the Movies. If you're new to our community, this is a series we do from time to time which uses some of Hollywood's stories to illustrate the story of God and his people. Each week we'll take a different movie and a different text from the scripture and invite God to speak. Now, here's where you come in. Please bring a friend with you. Over the years, we found this series to be a memorable and meaningful way to share the message of Christ's kingdom. I know several of you in this room attended Capitol for the first time during the movie series. Maybe your friend will be next. Can you think of a friend or a family member who used to go to church? Pull away. Let God speak to you. Anybody come into mind over the next two weeks, invite them to join us at one of our weekend services for the movie series two weeks from now. Finally, I have one 
more request of you. And this one is a big ask. Would you consider attending one of our two Saturday services? Our church has continued to grow, though our summer, num summer numbers typically dip. They didn't dip near as much this summer as they usually do, which is a pretty solid predictor that our weekend attendance will follow suit in the fall. Uh, hear me. This is a wonderful problem to consider, and we thank God for it. But we know that we will need to be intentional and strategic as we anticipate the future. The reality of our situation is this. Sunday morning is the most popular time to attend church. We are more likely to get guests on Sunday. We are more likely to draw more families on Sundays. But frankly, we are running out of room on Sunday. I want everyone to turn around and look at the back. Back row, way, way, way in the back. Will you wave at us? Hi, back row. Hi, back row. This is absurd. <laughs> and it's not even September. This is why we are asking some of you to consider regularly attending on Saturday. Now, we know there are barriers for many of you. Work schedules, family commitments, young children with naps. Hey, Attending Saturday may not be good for you or your family's spiritual formation, so I am not talking to you. At present, we only offer our youth ministry on Saturday in Park City and on Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. here in Salt Lake. Families with teenagers, please keep coming to the 11 a.m. service. It's really okay. But for others, could you adjust your routine? Could you alter your pattern as our community grows? Talk to your friends. See if you can make it a group thing. Go to dinner after the service. Start a new tradition during this season of our community's journey together. Now, if you were listening carefully to my words, you noticed the contradiction. I asked you to invite your friends, and I asked you to stop coming to church on Sundays. Now, that is a clear and compelling vision, isn't it? <laughs> Let me explain. We have to keep growing. Not because we need a bigger church. I am not interested in becoming a bigger church. I just want more people to experience the life-transforming power of Christ's love. And that sounds like a pretty good reason to keep growing. Our Saturday services are 6.15 right here in Salt Lake City and 4.45 p.m. in Park City. If you're willing to make the drive, we'd love to have you in Park City as well. Please stand. Well, if you came with a need, we'll have some of our wonderful volunteers waiting here at the front for you. So as the service concludes, make your way up. Invite him to pray for you before you head out. My prayer for you today is this. No matter where you are on this spiritual journey, whether you're in a season of blessing or burden or boredom, may you seek the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Thanks for being here today. Grace and peace.